If national security and national economic competitiveness are driven by new technology, then the U.S. is at risk of falling behind. That's according to the newest data analysis from Govini. It found that federal spending on a range of technologies is up, but in certain domains of research and development, it's not keeping up with, say, China. We get more from Govini CEO Tara Murphy-Doherty. Ms. Doherty, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And tell us what the study was about. You have identified through a taxonomy various areas of spending. What were you looking at here specifically? Absolutely. This is actually a really, really exciting and unique analysis. So what Govini did is we took from our data 14 different technology areas that were identified by the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. And we dove into those and developed a taxonomy around 11 specific technology areas derived from that original list, along with subsegments and then subsegments beneath that that get really, really granular. What the taxonomy shows shows for all of these different technology areas is U.S. federal spending over a five-year time period. All right. And looking at the 14 areas, with the exception of space, which is kind of surprising, spending did go up. Tell us the top-line findings here. Spending for the technologies covered in the taxonomy from fiscal year 2017 to fiscal year 2021 nearly doubled. So that overall investment in these critical technologies went from about $60 billion to about $117 billion. So significant increases, as you mentioned, Tom. When you start to look at the details and you really dive into where the increases lie, the vast majority of the rise over that time period falls within the biotechnology sector. And if you pull the onion back even farther, then you see it's really related to COVID response spending. Got it. So, yeah, if you back out COVID response spending, then the spending overall on the other 13 areas is just going up roughly at the rate that the federal budget is going up then? Exactly. That's exactly right. And the reason I mention the technology list that was put out by the Department of Defense from which we derived our taxonomy is because that means these aren't just a list of technologies that Govini thinks are important. These are the technologies that the United States national security leadership has said are vital to American competitiveness. So I think what's important is to be able to do exactly that kind of analysis that you're doing off the top of your head which is let's control for things that are happening in the world that might be creating these spikes and look at the overall trend as it relates to that competitiveness dynamic. Sure. The black swan ate the clam of artificial intelligence or something to make a ridiculous joke here. But my question is, what is the nature of the spending? Is it grants to academia on these technologies? Is it contracts? Is it SBIR development? I mean, what form does the spending generally take? So the spending uh, analysis covers all of the standard FAR activities that we see with big contracts coming out of the federal government, as well as those non-FAR transactions, some of which you mentioned. So this analysis looks at other transaction authorities, otherwise known as OTAs, grants, and all of the different mechanisms like SBIRs and STTRs. What we have found is that in places such as directed energy, you see a very small portion of overall spending being put through non-FAR-based contracts, meaning the vast majority of effort in an area as emergent as directed energy is still going through big traditional contracts. 
there might be nothing wrong with that, but it's a really, really unique type of visibility in terms of characteristics of the spending and looking at not just, okay, what are we spending, but how, and then that leads you naturally to the really important question of with whom. Right. Well, with whom is important, but also the fact that it's FAR-based, because by the same token, every person in the military with stars or scrambled eggs on their hat says the same thing, and that is the procurement system is stifling the innovation, stifling the speed of deployment of new technologies. But yet the majority of spending, you point out, is in fact through FAR-based standard contracting. That's exactly right. And I have to say, as the CEO of a venture capital-backed business that does work with the federal government and the Department of Defense, as we sit here in the final days of the fiscal year, boy, is the procurement system challenging. And it's complicated, not just on the executive branch side, but by the fact that we spend half the year with continuing resolutions. The whole thing is a nightmare, to be honest. And so, yes, I think it's important for defense leaders to look at their portfolios and for those responsible for areas of emerging technology where they're trying to attract companies that otherwise have plenty to gain from working just with the commercial sector and get them invested in national security problems. They need to understand that break down of not just how much are we doing today in a non-FAR based mechanism, but what's the maximum we can do because any flexibility is going to help drive innovation at this point. We're speaking with Tara Murphy-Doherty, the CEO of Gavini, so that one interpretation could be that the same spending could have more effect if it was through more effective mechanisms of, say, getting over what they call the valley of death for technology. One of the pieces of good news we saw in the analysis is if you look at the transition over time of not just places of performance of the work, which largely correlates to defense or federal installations, but you look at the headquarters locations of companies that are working with the federal government in these technology areas. And there's been a real shift over this five-year period from concentration in the national capital region and a few areas like big defense bases or national labs to a real strong alignment between American tech hubs and where we see companies working with the federal government to be headquartered. So the penetration is happening. That said, the number of new defense entrants into new entrants into the defense market is actually declining. So there's something going on here that shows we're still not getting the outcomes that we want, despite the fact that the number of activities, innovation centers, incubators, and certainly the amount of money being spent by the federal government in order to attract these innovative companies is just, it, it's rising, but is it getting the right results? And then sometimes there's a sort of paroxysm of spending as we are likely to get soon with that chips bill, which has grown from $50 billion to almost $300 billion for Lord knows what. But, you know, there are provisions in there, for example, that even the president himself said this, if you build a fab, you got to do it with union labor. And yet some of the very senators voting for this say fabs are way more expensive to build in the United States. So the government fuels the cost. And you wonder what that type of spending will accomplish either, that kind of mass spending on a profitable industry that began here in the United States. Absolutely. And yet hasn't seen much investment over the past five years, according to our analysis. So this national security scorecard that we're talking about today, Tom, was just featured at the Aspen Security Forum just last week. And there was a really interesting discussion among leaders, including leadership from Intel, about this exact dynamic. 
and the cost that is going to be associated with reshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, or whatever you want to call implementation of the CHIPS Act and increasing domestic fabrication of semiconductors, that is going to drive costs up. And that might be exactly the right response from an American national security perspective, but we better have an integrated economic plan to address it. All right. And a couple of other details I wanted to ask you about before we close here. One, space spending. When we have a new space command, a space force, and there's this huge burgeoning space industry without government subsidy, it gets government contracts to do launches in some cases, but in many cases, it's simply for the purposes of commercial space needs. So talk about the space spending that you saw by the government. So the space segment within this taxonomy and analysis is the single segment where spending didn't really rise over the time period. It was essentially flat, which in my mind makes it the single best example out of these emerging technology areas of just how big the gap can be between rhetoric and reality. Certainly over the past five, six years, including from the previous administration, but from many others, the the discussion around American investment in space has been bullish. And yet the money hasn't followed. Now, that might not be because of a lack of intent or the funding might still be coming and it's in the out years. There are certain major programs that ended. But notably, there's also this intertwining with the commercial activity that you're talking about. And I think that the analysis shows that actually prices are going down in a positive way because of an increase in commercial competition in some of these areas. I'll just make one last point on the space segment because it is such an interesting analysis. We saw an 8.5% decrease in the launch vehicle subsegment within the overall space technology segment that we analyzed. And that's a really good example of where we likely see a shift because of increased reliance on commercial space as opposed to the old way of doing things. Yes. Interesting you should mention that. I just spoke recently with uh, Stephen Meyer. He's the director of the Naval Center for Space Technology, and he pointed out, let's see if I can find this here. Yeah, the the cost to get a kilogram in space has gone down from $10,000 a kilogram to $100, two orders of magnitude, thanks to commercial investment. So there's hope there. And finally, quantum computing investment. That seems to be an area where we are going one way and China is going the other way. Absolutely. And so that highlights the difference between what the United States is doing relative to our competitors. We saw about a 12% increase over the time period for spending on quantum science. But the total real dollar value of that five years worth of spending is still only $1.7 billion dollars. As a portion of the American R&D budget or even just the Defense Department budget alone, that's minuscule. And so is it enough? Hard to say. Is it keeping pace with what China's spending on quantum? Certainly not. And that's what I think defense leaders and national security leaders across federal government need to grapple with. Tara Murphy-Darty is the CEO of Govini. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview together with a link to that national security scorecard. It's a heck of a read at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, 
beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and 
focus more on the people than than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.